0: You must be listening to the Goblin Broadcast Network at GBN.com.com. Amazing! Follow the Path. The Bears Grove Podcast. Adult-level discussion of role-playing as a storytelling art at BearsGrove.com. Welcome to the Bears Grove Podcast. This is episode 35, recorded on Sunday, the 13th of January, 2008. Running time for this program is about 38 minutes. Well, I bet you're surprised that we're back again uh, so soon. But I had the good fortune, the very good fortune, to speak to John Wick of the Wicked Dead Brewing Company um, in an interview that has been a long time coming. We spoke once earlier in the summer, then um, after the session, I realized there was no um, actual recording um, available. It had not picked up what we wanted to pick it up. and As a result, uh, I was kind of screwed. So I apologized profusely to John and uh, figured out eventually another way to get around doing the uh, recording. And then uh, just recently, he contacted me and said, do you want to go at it again? And I said, sure. So what we've got tonight is uh, just that. The interview with uh, John Wick, the first part of the interview actually, it's 30 minutes long or thereabouts, talking about his new game, Houses of the Blooded. Now I've had the opportunity to read Houses of the Blooded, at least in draft form, and I can tell you it really blew me away. I really enjoyed it. And Um, It is a game that is using the Fate Engine, or at least some of the Fate Engine, that you may be familiar with from games like Spirit of the Century, and if you haven't uh, looked at that yet, I would really uh, encourage you to go over to the Fate website or go over to Evil Hat Productions and uh, take a look, because it's a wonderful game system and it will give you a little idea as to what house of the blood is going to be like although as we can hear from this recording and as i read in the text it does take fate and just sort of drift it quite a bit really making its um uh, it, making it its own game um so uh, first also i want to re- i want to apologize for the quality of the recording i i'm still haven't gotten my interview uh, rig set up the way I want it, but I think this is somewhat better than it had been the first time we did the interview, and hopefully you won't be too annoyed by some of the extraneous noises, beeps, boops, and of course, my sounding a little bit like Darth Vader, I apologize. So next up, we have the interview with John Wick. Hey, this is Fred Hicks from Evil Hat. Looking for RPG podcasts? You got them. At RPGPodcast.com, I'd like to welcome John Wick to our virtual studio today. Uh, John is the creator of such huge games as Legends of the Five Rings, Seventh Sea, and um, smaller games that are no less uh, big in their um, in their gameplay. Uh, uh, games like uh, Orc World, Cat. Uh, Enemy Gods, Shower marchin, 30, and Discordia. And uh, John, I'm so happy to have you on the Bears Grove. Welcome.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: I uh, We're here to talk to you, to you today about your new game, Houses of the Blooded. And in addition to that, maybe talk a little bit more about uh, some of the insights that you've gained as you put together this new big game. Um, as to uh, how we might be able to apply that to a role playing as a storytelling art. So, first of all, you know what out of all the civilizations you could have chosen, um, you know so I was thinking Sumerian or Babylonian. Um, you decided to go with the event, and what was the decision that drove you towards that culture?
1: Uh, armchair historians. Uh, armchair historians drove me to that, to that conclusion. When, when uh, when, uh, we did Legend of the Five Rings, we, we did a lot of, we took a lot of liberties with Japanese history and mm-hmm. culture. And chiefly because, um, one of the things that we talked about a lot and that I was a big proponent of was mixing samurai history. Um, Japanese history is just as, as vivid and colorful and, and deep as, as, you know, any other culture's history. And if you look at L5R, it's a real mix of Tokugawa era, Japan, um, the Warring States period, and also a lot of uh, different cultures thrown in. Uh, we took the magistrate system from China and, mm. and applied it to, to L5R because it, it provided an opportunity for for adventures with characters from different clans.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you were, you were using that as a way of... Making it your own while still maintaining that historical verisimilitude.
1: Yeah, exactly. Clint Eastwood said that he was much more interested in making authentic westerns than historical ones, and I've always really liked that sentiment. I like the idea of of making something that feels real as opposed to something that is real. I, I'm a I'm a real culture nut. I, I I love studying foreign cultures and 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 figuring out how they work and and all that. So. Um, I do get upset as a, as a viewer when I when I watch or read things and, and I see things that are so blatantly, you know, for lack of a better word, just incorrect, and it really chased my hide. And so as as a as a designer, I want to avoid that in other people. And so what a lot of the things we did with, like for instance, with L Five R, is we just completely avoid um, any kind of armchair historian, you know, any kind of reaction by making it rokugan by not making it Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I think we cut it a little bit too close with Seven C, um, mainly because almost nobody noticed the the kinds of liberties we took with Japan with Rogagon, but everyone noticed the liberties we took with with uh, Seven C, and in fact, in some cases, um, called us on things that were historical, um, like the like the Vendel League, which was in in Seven C is is uh, responsible for creating a a a kind of currency that everyone is using. It was a rise of the merchant class and, and creating a kind of, a kind of super merchant class. And, and everyone was like, this is ridiculous. This has never happened in Europe. And, and I went and, you know, went and po- po- you know, pointed at the Hanseatic League and said, there it was.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: was just an extension of the Hanseatic League. I think I'm getting that right.
0: It's been so long. Mm-hmm. I think about it. <laughs> it sounds I mean, right. It was,
1: just, it was just an extension of the, of what was there. And, and, you know? And so with the Venn, there's so little research on who they were and, and what they were and all that that it, it really provided an opportunity to, to bring to light a kind of culture that, or a vivid culture that almost nobody knows about. And not only that, but at the same time with L5R and 7C, it was an attempt to really try to recreate not history, but recreate the kind of literature of the time. Seven Sea was never meant to be a historical game, but it was meant to be a, a literary game where you, you recreate the kind of works that you find in Alexander Dumas and, and other swashbuckling mm-hmm. literature. And mm-hmm. for Houses of the Blooded, what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a game that, that represented Venn literature, represented the pillow books and the operas and the, and the theater, and the way the Venn kind of saw themselves as opposed to an objective historical look at, at who they were.
0: Yeah, for people who haven't... um studied the Venn very much and I, I'm sure that's a lot of people. Um, there's not a lot. Uh, there, there are, I'm sure there are a lot of scholars out there who have spent uh, their lives on, on the VIN, but uh, it's sort of something that, you know, when I first heard about them, I was scratching my head. Uh, can uh, One thing that I really was drawn to was the fact that they have a kind of beautiful um, acceptance of the union of opposites in their culture. Uh, yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit about the Venn and maybe uh, hit on that.
1: Well, sure. They're a they a pre uh, uh, you know an culture, a pre mm-hmm. culture that mm-hmm. that survived for a very short period of time in in the scope of things. And um, they were, like you said, they, they were they were fascinated with with counterparts. With, uh, with things that were directly opposite of each other and yet complementary. Things like love and revenge, or, or you know, it, the, Venn word, the Venn word best translates as romance, I think, which is a much more ritualistic, much more deliberate um, uh, step-by-step process, you know. And, and so, for, ex- for example, the, the Venn word for, for romance and revenge is the same word, it's just a different, it's just a, a change of syllables. Mm-hmm. And the Venn language itself, one of the, one of the calligraphy styles involved ambigrams, which, which meant, uh, which are words, and Brown made them very popular with angels and demons, um, in that it's a way of writing that if you, you read the word and then you turn the word upside down, it says the same thing the other direction. Except the mm-hmm. Venn did it in a, in a very different way. Their, their calligraphy used Words like romance and revenge, and if you you looked at the word one way, it, it said romance. and You turned it over, and it said revenge. And mm-hmm. they were they were very. Their culture is almost built on that 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 kind of of duality between between extremes being essentially you know two ends of the same circle. Um, so it, it's from a role playing point point of view, it presented a, a real challenge to create a kind of game. That could well to create a book actually that could that could show not just talk about it, but really show the reader this kind of extreme culture. It's kind of a it's kind of a Jim Steinman meets John Woo type of culture. It's beautiful, mm-hmm. poetic, deadly, poisonous, brutal, bloody opera, and that's that's what the game is about. It's about recreating then opera, which is. You know, imagine um, uh, Macbeth as done by Evanescence or something like that. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's lots of lots of blood, lots of revenge, lots of passion, and, and doom and tragedy, and beautiful music and beautiful people doing it. And mm-hmm. that's what that's what the then were like.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's two different um, ways of looking at this project, and one is. Purely from the literary and historical side, uh, and from a from a narrative point of view, looking at that. But then, uh, when I take it and look at this, uh, you know, I, I was very um, happy, by the way, that you shared with me some of your notes, and I got a chance to read it. And when I was reading it, I was struck with um, the the design aspects and some of the things that were speaking uh, to that. And for example, um, I sense this. Um, in the in the the design, there's a lot of your continuous quest, as I've seen like in cat and mentioned in other books that you've written, to sort of uh challenge d and d and think okay <laughs> you know what are you doing and 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 how can I address you d and d uh and not necessarily in um opposition because in this I think that it's not really, it's not saying, well, I hate D&D and I'm going to make a game that's totally what D&D isn't. But it's more like, to me, it's sort of a how, how would I do it if I had never heard of it before. But anyway, if you could explain yeah. that a little bit for me.
1: Well, my, my gaming experience started with Chaosium. A lot of people,
0: their
1: first game was with D&D. And, and for me, my first role-playing game was called Cthulhu. And then it was RuneQuest, and then it was Pendragon, and then it was, because in the back of the Cthulhu, you know, box set, the one that I got out of Spencer's for 10 bucks was, um, was the Chaosian little, you know, catalog page. And it had Stormbringer and, you know, and, and all these things, so.
0: Wait, no, so you got it from Spencer's Gifts, the... Yes, I did. ...same place that has all the, you know, uh, eight balls and the lava lamps?
1: Yeah, exactly. What oh, happened my goodness. What I can figure, and and I I was very young when I got. I was living in Iowa, <clears throat> and when I got it, it it uh, I was in fifth grade. I had ten dollars in my pocket that I had I had saved up from my allowance, and we went to the mall because that's what you do when you live in Iowa. We were going to go see a movie, and I went to Spencer's Gifts, and um, I had already read some H.P. Lovecraft from the from the library from the town library. And so I knew what H.P. Lovecraft, well, I didn't know who H.P. Lovecraft was, but I knew the name, and I knew that I liked these big, wordy, you know, kind of silly, scary stories, and there was this book, or this big box, called Call of Cthulhu, and I went, I've read that story, and I had $10, and lo and behold, the the book was, or the box was $10. Now, Charlie Crank from Chaosium assures me that the Call of Cthulhu box set was actually $30, but they must have been trying to get rid of it or something, because I had $10. And as a matter of fact, they didn't charge me tax. They just wanted it out of the store. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I can tell. They just wanted to get rid of it because no one was buying it. And wow. uh, they got it by mistake or something. And so I, I got it. I brought it home. I had no idea what it was. And I read through it. And like most people who read through role-playing games for the first time, I, I, had, I, was, I had no idea what to do with it. And took it home and got a couple of my friends together, and we we played it wrong. And (laughs) we noticed that we were playing it wrong, and and we sat down and tried to figure it out. And that was my first game, was Call of Cthulhu.
0: Yeah, uh, you know what's interesting to me? I I don't want to interrupt you too much, but I I have to say, um, you know, people who started with Call of Cthulhu and RuneQuest especially, um, if you go back and trace their gaming lineage, uh, you'll... You know, especially game designers. What I'm, I'm specifically talking about game designers, people like Mark Reinhagen, Jonathan Tweet. Uh, you know, all these folks who Robin Laws, I believe, I'm not totally certain about Robin, but I know Jonathan and Mark did uh, start the game, uh, start gaming with RuneQuest, and that's such a completely different mindset. And I think it does speak to your ultimate gaming evolution. But anyway, go back. Uh, go ahead and. I didn't mean to interrupt too much. I just wanted to put that in. <laughs> well,
1: it's true. I, I think it's really true. It, your first experience with a role playing game really tells you what a role playing game is, and you know. So when when I my first experience with Dungeons and Dragons was very was very negative. Mm. My first experience with D anD D is when I moved to Georgia from Iowa, which was a bad experience, and. Um, and I brought Call of Cthulhu and Stormbringer and RuneQuest with me and Pendragon. And when I got there, the the, the other kids who were playing role playing games were playing D anD had never heard of it before, and um, so they said, "Okay, so let's uh, let's let's play D anD D." And I went, "Okay, I'll I'll try this. This, this is different." Um, and the and and my my very first experience was very unfortunate because they said, "All right, we'll make characters. Let's go kill it some green niggers." Yeah. That was my first experience with D&D, and, and of course, it's permanently scarred me for life. Oh. It, it, uh, it's how orcs became kind of a symbol for me for everything that I don't like about traditional or generic fantasy. Right. They, they became kind of a, you know, doing orc world was, was a response to John Vinder at AEG saying, I want to run a D&D game in the office, and I said, I want to play an orc bard just because I'm, you know, a discordian, and and I have to, you know, screw with things. (laughs) And he said, there's no such thing as an orc bard, because orcs are evil. And I said, orcs aren't evil, they're just misunderstood. It's all elven propaganda. And he said, well, you know, you can't play an orc, Well, prove it, he said. So I wrote an 8,000-word article for Shadis Magazine called Orc. And in it, I, I took all the orc tropes, all the orc cliches about them being cannibals and about how they'll screw anything and, and you know all these other things and I turned them into cultural values
0: hmm.
1: and um, it came from a study I read about about Christian uh, uh, missionaries going to visit uh, Eskimos back in the eighteen hundreds and they or the Inuit I guess is what we should be calling them now mm-hmm. uh the of, you know, it's more a more respectful term I guess um, and uh, the and what they found was that in some cultures, the uh, the when when people turned a certain age, like like they turned forty, they would tie rocks to their bodies and throw themselves into the water. Wow! And the Christians were like, "What do you do? You're committing suicide. This is a, this is a sin." And the the cultural standard was is that they believed that you went to heaven with the body that you died with, and so they wanted to die in their prime. Hmm. And, of course, this came from the fact that they were living in a scarcity culture, that their, their culture couldn't afford, you know, it, it's terrible to say, but they couldn't afford, or, you know, old people. Right. Because they can't hunt, and they can't carry, and they can't walk, and they become a burden to the culture. So the culture developed a myth that said, you go to heaven with the body you die with, to accommodate for the fact that they couldn't take care of, of, of their senior citizens. And so I took that notion and applied it to orcs. And so the whole thing about orcs, you know, orcs eat each other because they believe that you are who you eat. And when (laughs) Jip dies, we want his spirit to come with us, so we eat him. You know, and when we kill the the, the dwarf, we want his strength, so we eat him. You know, and, of course, nobody eats halflings because nobody wants to be a halfling. (laughs) But uh, that was what I did with, with orcs, because you know, for me, like I said, orcs are a symbol of of things that I don't like about about traditional fantasy. And uh and and you know, that was Orc World. And then here in Houses of the Blooded, orcs show up again because like you mentioned at the beginning of this long <laughs> degenerating uh sidestep here, um, uh, the the then word for monster um, is is orc is is and it's where the old English get the word. It's where you know Beowulf and Beowulf the the, the R word orc comes from Beowulf. And as it mm-hmm. turns out, the, the old English language and had a lot in common with, uh, or had borrowed some words from the Venn language. And there you have it. The word for monster is orc. And um, and the and the Ven attitude toward orcs is is anything that is not us is a monster. Mm-hmm. So sheep or orc and cows are orc, and, you know, and other things are orc, including the, the dreadful, awful things from, you know, from Ben mythology, the, the the dreaded, you know, monsters that came out and stole your kids. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's what Houses turned out to be. It, it turned out to be a, a, I think in the end, all fantasy role-playing games are, are a response to Dungeons & Dragons. Hmm. I, I think they all have to be. Because it, and and mine, I think, is just a much more conscious response because I, I wanted to address it. It was it, it, you're right. It was something I said. If I had never played D anD D, what kind of fantasy game would I make? Hmm. And uh, and so a lot of the design choices were about how would I, do, you know, how would I do hit points, and how would I do fight scenes, and how would I do, you know, a lot of things. So a lot of the design choices were direct. Responses to you know to
0: the way that D and D does them. So, give me like one example, or one or two examples of of specific- specifically. I know that there. Are, I mean, for example, until I became an adult and started playing um, with other adults, I never had like real sex, love, and relationships in my D and D game. because um, <laughs> well, it's all about killing. Right. It's
1: it's all about you know I mean I don't want to be I don't want to be derogatory because I, that's not, you know that's something you know we try to get away from as we get older. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but let's face it, you know D and D is a game about combat simulation. That's what it does, and it does it you know in the way that it does it. I there are count up the number of feats that give you a combat bonus, and then count count up the number of feats that don't. Exactly. It seems to me that. Yeah, it seems to me that everything, everything in D&D, and, you know, to answer Jared, Jared Sorensen's big three questions, you know, what is your game about, how does it do it, and, and what rewards, does it, what behaviors is a reward, D&D is about fighting and, you know, killing monsters, taking their stuff so that you can kill bigger monsters. And how does it do that? Every single mechanic in the game is driven towards killing monsters, evaluating treasure, and and creating treasure that is big enough so that you can kill bigger monsters. And then what, what behaviors does it reward? Well, the experience point system rewards you by becoming a, a bigger combat you know, machine that can kill bigger monsters. You know, and that's what the game is about. And whenever the game has a mechanic in it that veers away from that goal, it doesn't work. You know?
0: mm-hmm. so. Or it's, yeah, and I discovered in my own experience that in order to run the kind of game that I wanted, um, I had to completely ignore the rules of D&D. And so, and then it gets back to the whole system matters thing, which we can talk about for hours. But yeah. <laughs> moving back to the specifically Houses of the Blooded, what things in yeah. there can you point to and say, okay, so this is, you know, compare, compare and contrast.
1: So in D and D, everything is front loaded. Um, all of your advantages, all the feats, all the, all the bonuses that feats give you, all the bonuses that your stats give you, all the bonuses that your skills give you, your level, everything, everything is front-loaded. You do everything before you roll the d20. There are no choices to make after the, after the dice are rolled. Mm-hmm. You roll the dice, the dice tell you what happens. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to create a system that was the, that was the exact opposite of that. I wanted to create a system where after the dice rolled, everything happened. So uh, what happened was is that in houses, we have a standard target number, which is 10. 10 is always the target number. And you roll a bunch of six-sided dice. And if you roll 10 or higher, you have what's called privilege, which is that you get to say if your character succeeds or fails. And like I said, in D and D, you roll the dice, and the dice tell you if you succeeded or failed. In this game, you roll the dice, and if you have privilege, you get to say whether your character succeeded or failed, and how he did it. Hmm. If you don't beat a ten or higher, then the game master has privilege, and he says whether you succeed or failed. And um, this, and I've been playtesting the game with a lot of different groups. And one of the groups I playtested it with was a hardcore, you know, was a hardcore D and D group. They play D and D, and that's pretty much all they play. Um, they've played other games; they didn't like them. They, they play D and D.
0: Nothing wrong with that. Nothing I mean, wrong with that at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, D and D is a combat simulation, and it does what sure. it does really, really well. And it makes a lot of people very happy. And you know, I don't. I'm. <laughs> it's it's a new year, and and I don't like pissing other people's Cheerios. No. <laughs> So it's you know, they and and but like I said, it is a game that that we want to try to do something different. That's not just D and D and my elves are taller. So I I approached them with this game and I said, Okay, here's how this works. If you roll ten or higher, you get to say if your character succeeds or fails. And if not, then I do. And their first response was was the typical response I get, which is why would I want my character to fail? (laughs) And and I and I said, well, we'll go through it and and we'll play the game, and you can find out why. So we're playing the game, and in House of the Blooded, you play nobles. Again, it's it's a, it's a counterpart to D and D. Where in D and D you play Conan, you play a wandering nomad who has no family, no no friends, no history. He only has a future, and um, and you have no money, you're dirt poor, and you go out and you make your own fortune, and that's D and D. And in Houses of the Blooded, you are not playing Conan. You're playing Elric. You're a noble. You have an empire. You, you have money. You, you don't need to worry about money. Money is not even an aspect in the game. It mm-hmm. just doesn't even matter. Nobody counts pennies in Houses of the Blooded. Nobody counts copper pieces. And you have everything. And what you're trying to do is get more. Because the van always need more. So the game isn't so much about acquisition as it is about... Well, there's an acquisition part, but it's more about land and romance and revenge and intrigue and all these things that, you know, that, that, that deals with. So they're playing nobles at a party. And, um, and one of the things that one of the, one of the players is playing a spy master. He's playing the, the big lords, you know, master spy. And he, and, um uh. uh and the Lord is sent his master spy to follow his wife, to follow the Lord's wife, because he wants to know if his if uh, uh, he wants to know if his uh, wife is cheating on him and having mm-hmm. an affair. Well, what he doesn't know is that the master spy is having an affair with the Lord's wife, um, <laughs> and the Lord doesn't know this. And in houses, again, one of the things is that there are no notes. There's no note passing. There's no secret talks everything there's a rule that everything happens above table so that the player who is playing the lord and the player who is playing the spy master both know that there's there's an illicit affair going on and that it's happening between these you know and it's, these two players are part of the same triangle they both know it and because there are no secrets the the lord gets to watch the other player carry out this 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 affair with with his wife <laughs> and it, cre- it creates a really interesting dynamic so um, one of the things is that he says okay, well he's talking with the wife and the wife says, says does he suspect us and the uh, and he says I want to lie to her I want to convince her that he doesn't know that she's having an affair and I said okay go ahead and make a role. so he makes the roll and he he, he, he gets, he gets privilege and he says okay I'm going to lie to her and fail so that she knows that I'm lying to her. (laughs) And, and, you know, and this creates, again, this creates more. And in that, that kind of, of thing doesn't happen in a role-playing game where everything is front loaded. Right. Because it's a binary question. Did I succeed or fail? You know, yes, I succeeded. No, I failed. And because the players have the opportunity to explain how they succeed, you get nuance. You get, the, you, you, you get the ability to have not a binary answer, but a gray answer. And because that opportunity is there in the game mechanic, it creates a different kind of game play for the players. And it took them a session to figure it out. And it was at that moment that the player said, he looked at his dice and said, I can succeed. But I want my character to fail, and that's when they figured it out. What? What? That? You know, why would I want my character to fail? And they figured out that's why I want my character to fail. So we can create the nuance that exists in that those kind of dramas.
0: So in that moment, the player is uh, coming to understand the authorship concept. I mean, basically, going look, you know, um, the, the story could continue along this other path, but. I really want to make it go a different path, and that's that's yeah. what you're saying. Essentially, is it puts that that author um, power in the player's hands.
1: Yeah, I I've I've heard this bandied about the game industry. I don't know who said it, but it's a beautiful, powerful thing. He said that that role-playing games are the only literary medium where the author is the audience. Um, and I really liked that a lot. And it, ever since I heard that, I've been trying to work into my games. Mechanics that are, that that encourage that kind of behavior, that kind of thing that really separates um, our stuff from movies and from TV and from books and from you know even from comic books. In that we're creating the literature as we go, and um, so it's it's a you know it's a little bit of improv acting and it's a little bit of of storytelling skills, and, and, you know, it's a lot of different things. And if games have mechanics that that allow players to do that, not only allow it, but, you know, really, you know, because you can, you know, saying allow is really wrong, because any game can be a role-playing game. You can make checkers a role-playing game, Mm -hmm. right? Because, or chess is the best example, because I can name my king, and I can make dumb moves based on my king's motives. And just like that, I've turned chess into a role-playing game. Yeah,
0: that's, why I order- always, that's why I always lose at chess. I can't.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I always just chess because I'm bad at it. But uh, um, Well, but that too, order-
0: probably for me, but I, I just get, <laughs> I get caught up like, oh no, my bishop has to swoop in to save that pawn, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah.
1: Well, so, we're, yeah. we're creating a role-playing game out of it. But mm-hmm. in order to do that, we have to add elements to it. The, the rules do not, do not encourage or reward that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's why you know, I've, I've said things like, wow, like World of Warcraft is not a role-playing game any more than chess is. It's a game where you run around and with an icon, which may as well be a box you know, that you can paint,
0: mm-hmm. and you run
1: around and kill stuff and take the treasure and get more stuff. It's only because we add things to it that make it a role-playing
0: game. Yeah, the day that uh, an MMO hires a group of live-action role players to sit online and interact with people when they come to a certain point in an instance, um, and, you know, it will be the d- day that I will I will sign up for that MMO. But <laughs> I Yeah, mean, you so know. what you
1: have to do then is you have to have an MMO that's willing to, um, well, for that, when... I play in, or I, I occasionally, because I moved away, by playing Jess Heinegg's, uh Dying Kingdoms LARP, mm-hmm. which is brilliant because Jess is a brilliant game designer. And his, um, his LARP has a rule, which is that you have to spend at least a quarter of the time at the events playing in PCs. It's a rule. You, you cool. can't get around. So I get to, when I was at it, I got to play a Snake Man, because Jess and I have a thing about Snake Man, and they're really cool. And uh, snake men, and and also you get, to, or you can play a bandit, or you can play, you know, a monster who shows up, and you know stuff. You have to do it. So, taking that notion from Jess and from what you just said, we create a, we create an MMO where part of the rule of playing the game is you have to play NPCs at least a quarter of the time.
0: Fascinating. There you go. That, that's, that, would, that
1: would That would work. Hey, we created a game.
0: Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Um, and, of course, you know, this, this podcast, copyright, no, I'm just, te- I'm just teasing. Uh, this is a, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not the ideas that, the pro- that are the problem. The problem uh, with that sort of thing is the money and the yeah. development. Thank you for listening to that. Uh, we'll be having the second part of that interview coming out next week. From Sam Chup, co-creator of the role-playing game Changeling the Dreaming comes a new fantasy novel set in a world over 30 years in the making. Heart of the Hunter is a gritty but fast-paced tale of adventure in the deep forest.
1: This is why my lovers leave my arms bare. My weapons bound to my spirit. Got this dagger custom-made, Preacher. Balanced, sharp as a pretty boy's tongue, and just as sweet.
0: Arn the Gypsy, Alabar the Shepherd. Peter the Veteran and Raven the Sneak Thief must protect a small caravan on its journey from the center of civilization to the icy frontier. The Nail Tongue's number grows daily as their hunting parties plunder further south from the wastes. Winds are changing, yes, and mayhaps now they turn the way we wish. Along the way they will come to know of a long-lived hatred and an even older power an ancient talisman known only as the heart of the hunter let us kill the one who dared kill our own we will then go to mother yuleen and add the killer's name to the chant of death as a warning to those who would do such a thing they don't fight for glory or for honor or revenge they just want to survive and get paid the girl's paw was a merchant right there'd be a merchant guild bounty Assurance payments, no doubt. You could letterbox ahead, find out for sure. And how does a mercenary know about assurance payments, pray tell? I can also dance a jig, sir, but it ain't my bread and butter. Come feel the magic and wonder of I the magical country. This card here, it is the tangled skein. A small thread seems to be nothing, but unravels all. I can only surmise this means there is more to your journey than we can know. Come join the journey. Listen to the audiobook for free at heartofthehunter.com. The song Epic Orchestral Theme is by Rob Vandenberg. The Bears Grove is a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives, no commercial use podcast. You can find out more about the Bears Grove by going to our website, bearsgrove.com. And you can find out more about the other podcasts that I produce over at fireheartfoundry.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, have sweet dreams when you get them. 38.